take your Bibles and turn again for the third week in a row to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, verse 8. I want us to, I guess, review and rehash a bit what we've talked about for the last two weeks and perhaps even clarify a little more because this is an important passage. Hebrews is filled with warnings. There are two major warnings. One is found here in chapter 6. The other is found over in chapter 10, which we'll get to in a few weeks, that talks about, uh, you know, there is no sacrifice for those who go on willy, uh, willfully sinning. And we will talk about that in depth when we get there. But, but Hebrews has become a, a point of concern for many people, especially those who, like myself, believe that salvation is eternal, that salvation in Christ is something that never ends, that eternal life means just that, eternal life, not temporal life, not occasional life, not off and on life, not hopefully to have life, but that eternal life in Jesus Christ is exactly that. It is eternal for all times. I believe that with all my heart. I believe it on the basis of the scripture. I believe it because of Jesus' words. I believe it because of Paul's words. And I even believe it because of the words of the writer to the Hebrews. I was reading again this week a little bit in, in one of my favorite historical preachers, and that is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I was reading a little bit about one of Spurgeon's early sermons. I think he changed his view on this a little bit later on. But I found it interesting that in one of his early sermons at Park Street Church, where the, the first six years of his ministry he spent, before it became Metropolitan Tabernacle and, and they built the tabernacle, but at Park Street, Spurgeon made the statement. He said, you know, that I, I wish those Hebrews had just kept their letter to themselves. And uh, I think there are a lot of people through the years that have just kind of wished Hebrews had kept their letter to themselves and it never made its way into the canon of Holy Scripture. But we would be at loss had that taken place. Because what the writer of Hebrews is doing here, and I've already kind of alluded to it, but we'll talk about it over and over, is that he is taking the absolute truth of the old covenant, the truth of the covenant-making God, and all that God was showing the Israelites about the coming Messiah in all of the sacrifices, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and he takes them and he applies them to the church today. He applies them to the believer in Christ today. And he says everything God was doing, everything God was showing us, everything God was purposing to do from the time of Adam on was to show us the glory of God and the glory of God in Christ Jesus and the grace that was to come in Christ Jesus. I mean, the, the writer of Hebrews gives us the greatest bridge to the Old Testament of any other New Testament book. And he does it many times by quoting the Old Testament, as we talked about. He loves the Psalms, and he loves Isaiah, and he loves to just bring those uh, passages to life that we might understand what they meant, not only to David and those who wrote them back in the Old Covenant, but to us today who walk with Christ and who live in Christ. Hear these words again from, uh, from Hebrews chapter 5, 11 through 6, 8. Concerning him, that is concerning Christ, 
We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is still an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. That is his great cry, by the way, to the church, both in his day and to the church in our day. The great cry of this letter and the word to you and me is, listen, let us press on to maturity. Let's not be satisfied being spiritual infants. Let us not be satisfied being just caught up with the milk of the word. Let us desire to know the absolute truth of God's word. Let us desire, desire to know a deeper walk with Christ. Let it permeate our life. Let us mature in Christ Jesus. Let's not go on in immaturity because as long as we're immature, we we are susceptible to the tripping up and to the dangers and to the wiles of Satan. We are susceptible to being caught up in his schemes. Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians in chapter 6 of Ephesians, and he said, listen, don't be unaware of the schemes of the devil. Be aware of what he's trying to do. Be aware of the fact that he wants to tear you down. Be aware of the fact that he wants you to look at the past and not recognize who you are in Christ and look to the future of what Christ is wanting to do in your life. He says, let us not be unaware of the schemes of the devil who consistently and constantly wants to tear you up and strip you of all the joy that is in Christ Jesus for those who are moving on to maturity. That's so important to remember. And so the writer of Hebrews says, let us press on toward maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That's an elementary principle. We know that. Let's move on from that. We build on it, but let's know more than that. Of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. You notice how he puts his faith in God, not in them. I like that. We need to learn that. We know that God will mature us and God will move us forward according to his will and according to his purpose. And thank God it's not up to me to have to do it all. Thank God it's not up to me to have to worry about whether I can keep myself saved or keep myself walking. But my only desire, my only commitment ought to be is I submit myself to the living and the true God and I submit myself to his word and I submit myself to his will and then as God permits, he will move us forward. We will do this if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the, of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those Whose, whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, 
I dealt with the fact a week or so ago that one of the things that, or one of the ways of looking at this and understanding it is that the writer never does say these people are, are saved. He says they've tasted, they've partaken a little bit, they've, they've been involved in this, but if they've had that and they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. There is a way of looking at this, however, to understand that these people whom he's talking about are indeed saved. They are indeed believers. They have partaken of the Holy Spirit fully. They have eaten of it. They have, they have partaken of the, of the heavenly gift. And they have come to know Christ, and they are struggling because of their immaturity. And the writer is saying, listen, if you fall away, if you deny Christ, if you turn your back on him, if you deny that he is the Savior and the Lord, and say, I want nothing to do with him, then, he's, then there's a way of seeing this and understanding this. Of saying, then understand this, if you can fall away, if you can lose your salvation, you can never be restored to it again. There's no in and out. Salvation is not a, a revolving door. Salvation is not something that you say, well, I'll take a little bit of it today, and then tomorrow I think I'll just immerse myself in the world, and then when I get ready, I'll come back to Christ again, and I'll be saved all over again. I told you about the guy in my church in Alabama, uh, right out of seminary, who came and made a profession of faith. He said it was the seventh time to be saved. Well, as life went on, it proved it wasn't his seventh, it wasn't even his first that he really never had been saved. His life was just so scrambled and so confused that he never understood what the real work of God in his life was. But, but what the writer wants us to see here, and is, is, I mean, I love the way he says it. We'll talk more about this uh, in, in next week. But he says in, in verse 9, he said, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. He basically says, I know and I expect you to show life in Christ. Yes, you're immature. Yes, you become spiritually lazy. Yes, you are not being what God has called you to be in its fullest respect. But I really don't think you're losing your salvation. I don't think you're going to deny Christ. I don't think you're going to turn your back on him. I think better things of you. I am convinced of better things of you because I have seen the work of God in your life. I think where we have to come to understand is, is it a work of God or is it a work of man? Is it something I do or something that God does? I've been working for the last few weeks on a, uh, a men's conference that I'm speaking at in Montgomery, Alabama in August, and I'm, I'm preparing the messages now, and I, I had to get a theme for, those, for, those, for the pastor and the staff to start promoting a little bit, and they, they wrote me last week, and they said, have you decided on what you're going to deal with? And I said, yes, I have. And they said, well, what is your theme going to be? And I said, my theme is going to be this, living in light of no condemnation. Living in light of no condemnation. And, and obviously I'm taking my text from Romans chapter 8. I read the latter part of Romans chapter 8 to you all ago as our call to worship. But Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, to me, that's an important verse. Remember, that may very well be one of my favorite verses of Scripture to just go back to over and over again. And I read it to myself, and I remind myself of that, because I know that in my walk that Satan wants so badly for me to feel condemnation. And he wants you to feel it too. 
Satan so wants you to believe that, you know, I, I just don't think God could ever forgive me. I don't think God could really let me off the hook for what I've done in the past. And, and I just think I'm going to have to pay for those sins and I'm going to have to suffer for those sins and I'm going to have to somehow pay for them in the final analysis. What Paul is wanting us to understand here and what the writer of the Hebrews, I'm convinced, believes beyond a shadow of a doubt based on that chapter 6 verse 9 is that he believes and he understands that no person who is in Christ ever pays for their own sins. The only way you can pay for your own sins is by death, spiritual death, eternal separation from God. And, and that's not even a full payment. That's just the, the debt that's due, if you will, because of the sin itself. But Paul understood, and the Scripture talks over and over again, Jesus himself talks over and over again about the reality that if we are in Christ Jesus, verse 8, verse 1, chapter 8, Romans, God, uh, Romans epistle, if we are in Christ Jesus, and that's one of the most, that's one of Paul's favorite phrases, and it's used throughout the New Testament over and over again for a person who is a Christian. You are in Christ Jesus. There is the reality of the fact that when we, are, when we come to Christ, when we profess faith in Christ, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and draws us to Christ, as, as Jesus says in John 6 and John 10, that the Holy Spirit does. When the Holy Spirit draws us, we see our sin, we see our need for a Savior, and we cry out for the mercy of God the, the word that's used is, is we are in Christ. There is this concept of a union with Christ. Becoming one with Christ. It's a, it's a picture in many ways like a, a marriage union. The husband, the wife. If we're living up to what God's standard is, it says you have become one. God has made you one. You have entered into a union. Now you don't lose your individuality in marriage. Red and I have been married a long time. And she's still Retta, and I'm still Bill. And, and, and we're not, she didn't start acting like me, and most people are saying, thank God for that. Uh, she didn't start acting like me, and I didn't start acting like her. She didn't start liking everything that I like, and I didn't start liking everything that she likes. We still have our, our own individual personality, if you will, but we are together. We are one in Christ Jesus, made that way, by the Holy Spirit, made that way through vows and commitments that were made on that marriage day. When we come to Christ, we profess Him. We go through the waters of baptism, and that, those waters of baptism are kind of our vows that we are making as we make marriage vows, that we now belong to Christ, and He is our Savior, and He is our Lord. And when that happens, there is a mystical union. There's a joining together with Christ, and there is an inseparable bond that takes place when we come to Christ. Sadly, in our marriages, we can see divorce. But in this union, in this coming together as one, there is no separation, there is no, there, there is no divorce. It is only union. It is only in Christ. It is only together with Him. And because of that, there is no condemnation for those who are in 
Christ Jesus. Now, in, in chapters 1 through 7 of Romans, I don't have time to give you the whole, whole survey of this, but I want you to understand, those seven chapters are all talking about God has justified you. God has made you a new creature. God has brought you and adopted you into his family. God has given you a propitiation through Christ for your sins. I mean, he has brought all this together. And now Paul says in Romans 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, he said, therefore, on the basis of all of this, therefore, because of all God has done, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. That's a fairly absolute statement. That's a fairly complete statement. No condemnation. Do you mean to tell me that when, when the judgment day is here and I stand before God and, and, and I'm standing there knowing that I've committed sins, that I have done things, even since being a believer, that I should not have done, are you telling me I'm going to stand before God and God is not going to say, Bill... Let me just go over a few things here you blew. Let me go over a few things here that you, you just owe a debt for. You know, I understand that you, were, you trusted my son, and I understand that you were in Christ, but you know, there are these few things here that I just want to go over with you. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You're going to stand there clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're going to stand there as though you had no sin, as though sin had never left your lips or no action of sin had ever been involved in your life. You are going to stand there before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not because you earned that righteousness. Not because you even developed that righteousness in your life. Not because you said, I am going to be good enough. I'm going to try real hard. And I'm going to see if I can't be righteous before God. And I'll never sin again. Not that at all. But because the perfect one, the Holy Son of God, the one who died on the cross and shed his blood that you might have life covers you, protects you, presents you and represents you before the Father. We have an advocate. We have a, a pleader. We have an attorney, if you will, that stands before God and pleads our case, not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of of his protection. But you need to understand this. It's because when a person is in Christ, a dramatic thing takes place. It's not just a matter of becoming religious. It's not just a matter of saying, okay, I believe in Jesus and now I'll try real hard. But it's a matter of coming to Christ coming to God the Father through Christ and saying, I can do nothing. I, I have no hope if it's up to me. I have no way to fulfill God's holy law. I break it every time I sneeze, it seems like. Every time I turn around, I'm violating God's law. I am, I am struggling. Paul made that clear in Romans chapter 7. He said, man, I'm, I'm struggling with these things. 
find myself doing what I ought not do and not doing what I know I ought to do. And it's a struggle. It's a pain. It's a, it's a difficulty in life. I tell people all the time that the one thing that shows me that the Apostle Paul is a believer is Romans chapter 7. You know why? Because an unbeliever, a non-believer, somebody that's not in Christ can sin with all the glee and happiness and contentment they ever want. They can. They can do the most vile and wretched things you can ever imagine. They can disobey God's word and not care one thing about it. They would even almost say, what does God's word have to do with it? An unbeliever can, see, can sin with a lot of pleasure and a lot of ease. A believer can't. A believer can sin. Boy, they're miserable in it. They can sin, and, and they do sin. But boy, there's a struggle there because the Holy Spirit indwells their life. Jesus Christ is a part of their life. They are in union with Christ, the perfect one, the holy one, the standard that is there. And when sin enters a believer's life, they're miserable. Because the Holy Spirit is there saying, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not, that's not what you're all about. That's not what you ought to be following. That's not what you ought to be giving yourself to. Now, we can grieve the Spirit and say, leave me alone, Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm going to do this. But there'll be misery in it. There'll be unhappiness in it. There'll be a knowledge that we're being disobedient to the call that God has placed upon our life to salvation. And until we repent, until we come to confession before the Lord, there will be no peace. If you're a believer. So if you're sitting here this morning, you say, well, Bill, I don't, I don't think you're right on that, man. I've made a professional faith and I just sin and enjoy it all the time. Then you ought to be worried. Because he's going to say later on, as I said in Hebrews chapter 10, he's going to make this little statement that, that ought to scare the willies out of everybody who's just enjoying their sin and, and saying, What's the big deal? In verse 26, he's going to say, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. If we go on sinning willfully, gleefully, Happily, joyfully, pleasurably. But the writer of Hebrews says to these, to these believers that are dispersed, we're convinced of better things concerning you. We believe, we're convinced of things that accompany salvation. In other words, he's saying, but we've seen the Spirit of God work in you. And you may be being tempted to go back to the old blood sacrifices. You may be being tempted by peer pressure to go back to the old covenant. We believe better things about you. I believe you're in Christ. I believe there's no, therefore, 
no condemnation because you're in Christ. You're trusting Christ. I believe you're a part of the purpose of God that I read about in, in Romans 8.28 to start this service as a call to worship. You know, that, that those who are called, by, who love God, who are called by His purpose, see even bad things, even difficult times working together for good. I believe you know the power of God that Peter writes about when he says in 1 Peter 1, uh, 3 through 5 that you are protected, you are guarded, constantly guarded by the power of God because you belong to Him. I believe you know the promise of the, of, of the Savior, the promise of Jesus when He said, you know, no one will be able to snatch you out of my hands if you belong to me. You are protected by the power of Christ and the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. I think He's saying you are believers and I believe you are there and secure because the Son has prayed for you and He's asked God to protect you and to keep you, not, not to take you out of the world, but protect you in the world. And that's been his constant prayer for you since the day he ascended. I believe better things about you because I believe, as, as Jesus said, you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. John 14, he said, I'll leave myself personally, physically, but I won't leave you alone. I'll send a comforter. I'll send a paraclete. I'll send the Holy Spirit to watch over and care for you and make my presence known. I believe that you have the new nature, I think he's saying. I believe these better things because you have a new nature. As Peter said in 2 Peter 1.4, you are partakers of the divine seed, the divine nature when we are in Christ. And as John said in 1 John 3.9, that God has placed his seed, his word, his truth within us. And the words John uses there are words that indicate that it continually abides in us without end. It is a continuing thing for all of eternity. So I believe these th I believe better things about you because concerning the things that accompany salvation, you have been reconciled with Christ. You have been reconciled with God through Christ. And you belong to Him. You see, I, I think the writer here is saying... Listen, be careful. Press on to maturity. Get your priorities right. Study the Word. Get into the Word deeply. Don't just drink milk. Don't just act like an infant. But press on for solid food. Mature in Christ. Know Him better. Walk with Him greater every single day. Let Him be your Lord in every respect. Look to Him and trust in Him. Oh, Oh, the need for the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century to heed this writer's words and to press on to maturity. Paul put it this way to the Philippians. He said, you know, we're in a race. And the race is hard. And the race is difficult. But let us now press on for the upward call and the prize that is in Christ Jesus. Let us press. And he uses the imagery of a runner that's running in a race, and he's giving it all he's got, and he's pressing hard, and he desires above everything else to win the race. He said, live your Christian life just like a runner would, would run to win the prize. Run to the point that you will show yourself to be mature an adult believer, not an infant. Let's pray.
Father, it is with hearts that desire for you to open them. Show us the depth of your love and the depth of your purpose. Show us those areas of secret, hidden sin. Let your Holy Spirit enlighten those and draw them out and draw us to confession. Lord, make us miserable. Make us miserable until we walk in your light. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Lord, now as we pray, as we sing and as we pray the song, change my heart, O God. Would you change us into your likeness? For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.